You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. If there is a word to describe the landscape of Western thought right now, specifically in the Protestant evangelical world that most of us swim in, I think that word is skeptical. We are skeptical. We're skeptical of pretty much everything. Uh, We're skeptical of people in power and authority. We're skeptical of our neighbors. We're skeptical of where we've come from. We're skeptical of where we're going. We're skeptical even of our own identity and our decisions and who we are as people. And it's this interesting mixture of uncertainty, which is, I don't know, and pessimism, which is assume the worst, and apathy, which is I don't really care. And you put those together in an age of misinformation and your personal thought closet is the straw that serves the drink of the age of skepticism. And there are a lot of issues with this, but the overwhelming one is that it tends to creep in to everything that we do. Let me give you a prime example. We can all collectively admit something. Sometimes, maybe even most of the time, we are not entirely convinced that prayer works. We're just not convinced. We're skeptics. Think about it. What is prayer? What does prayer feel like? Most of the time, it feels like talking to a wall. And a lot of the time, not even talking because it feels strange to talk out loud to someone who you can't see. And so we more think our prayers and talk them because we feel really weird processing out our day to our dog. Uh, True, it's just true. Uh, Plus, the question is, is God really interested in the minute and mundane details of my pathetic little life? I mean, is he not fighting world hunger, human trafficking, a global pandemic, mass genocide across the globe, it feels like he is wasting massive amounts of time on little old me when the world seems to be spinning off its axis. Something tells me that my day-to-day annoyances pale in comparison to an epidemic ravaging the globe, for example. And then... What about the prayers that I prayed and that I've longed for and that I've asked for years and years and years? And it's either that God has gone silent, that he's grown apathetic, or even worse, that he actually enjoys my suffering. Or what about the prayers that I have prayed that have been answered? prayers that she's prayed and the prayers that he's prayed and the stuff that he's dealt with and the chronic chronic back pain and the uh, besetting sins or the ache that my best friend still denies your existence even after what can only be classified as hellacious evil and trauma in her life. You have answered some of my prayers, but you haven't answered theirs. Why? Why? It just feels a little unfair. Plus, let's face it, depending on your theological outlook, what is the point in praying if God has already predetermined every nook and cranny of the universe? He sure does not need to consult me for my take 
He seems to know what he's doing. He's been doing it for a long time. Skeptics. We're skeptics. Truthfully, if you haven't thought some of those things, or felt some of those things, or said some of those things out loud, I would love to be you. I would love to be you. Please come talk to me afterwards. I am not saying those are good or bad thoughts or actions. I am just saying that they're honest. Which, at the end of the day, is where prayer starts. Honesty. It's where it always starts. We tend to pretty it up. We come with some sort of pretense to the table, like we have to somehow orchestrate the right words and the right part posture that feels presentable and, dare I say, impressive to God and to those in the room. And we've been around long enough to know Christianese and the vernacular to make it appear like we are in, right? But we all sort of know that we're lying to ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. Prayer starts with honesty. It is nearly impossible and theologically dangerous to talk about fasting without talking about prayer. Arguably, the simplest practice in the entire Christian faith is harder than rocket science. Prayer. Why? Why is it so hard? For so many of us, why is it so difficult? Don't we all want to experience the fullness of God? Don't we all want to see the kingdom of God come to our city and in our world? Don't we all want to receive forgiveness and be empowered with the Spirit and walk in freedom and be witnesses of the kingdom in our workplaces and our neighborhoods? And don't we want those who are far from God to experience that same life too? Don't we want that? Yeah, I think we actually do want that. I think most of us, most of us in this room would say we want that. But what we don't want... To get what we don't want is to give up what it takes to get that honesty. Honesty. Pausing our crazy, hectic external lives and our anxiety filled, always receiving input internal lives to recognize that we are both nothing in the eyes of the world and beloved children of the Father requires something of us. Honesty. French philosopher Blaise Pascal says, all of humanity's problems stem from one man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. All of humanity's problems stem from one man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And maybe you think for a few seconds, why? And then you think for a few more seconds, oh, I know why. <laughs> because all the stuff just starts to rise to the surface. All the thoughts, all the desires, all the catastrophic situations, all the trauma, all the sins, all the disasters, all the questions, all the confusion, it just comes up. So we intentionally avoid quiet alone time. I'd argue we actually run away from it because sitting with ourselves in front of God, we either believe is a waste of time and, and unnecessary or what I would argue is probably more likely, 
unbelievably intimidating and absolutely not an option. Either way, we avoid it, and a bunch of people ignoring and suppressing all the stuff that's going on in here will ultimately spill out into the world out there. God is not looking for you to be perfect. He has already done that. Even our good actions are painted with ill motives. So the goal is not perfection, but the goal is honesty. And to fast is to pray with your body. And we can starve our stomachs and our appetites all we want, but if it is not paired with an honest cry and plea for God to move and to act and for God's presence to more permeate the world, then why fast? Why? So we're going to move through two themes, power and intercession. Power, Jesus in the wilderness and Matthew 4. The teaching text that was read is a strange story, but it's important that it's the story before we ever actually get into the public ministry of Jesus. We focus a lot on the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, as we should, but we run right past what may be the most important story before we ever get to the public life of Jesus. The story does not make sense logically. Jesus fasted for something like 40 days, a month and a half, and then was led by the Spirit of God directly into the temptations of Satan. Hunger, physical hunger, turn these stones into bread. Provision and protection, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down here. Power and prominence, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. At seemingly his most vulnerable, his most hungry, his weakest, and his most irritable, he now has his divinity put to the test before he ever Unless, of course, it wasn't his most vulnerable. Unless, of course, it wasn't his weakest. Unless, of course, it wasn't his most irritable. Unless, of course, he wasn't all that susceptible to Satan's temptations. Our contemporary reading of this, where we see hunger and fasting and bodily ache as a form of weakness, it was actually Jesus, the human being, at his strongest. Luke 4, 1 through 2 actually says it a little better, I think. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Insert temptation. Full of the Spirit. If we could sum up what fasting means for us, it would be that. It is a voluntary denying of one's strong desires so that one might be filled with the heart's deeper desires, namely more in tune and in touch with God himself. Too fast is to be deeply concerned about holiness, to not be enslaved to anything, but free of every attachment, every appetite, and every idol. We are under the illusion that we are willing and without ever having to deny ourselves of what we want. Newsflash to no one in here, it doesn't work that way. We will be split people who get everything we want and constantly fight back sin, who say yes to every desire of the head and heart, all while feeling in touch and in tune with the Spirit. 
There is no resurrection without crucifixion. And it is in the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, where we actually experience the power of God. Foolishness, wisdom. And so it is in the everydayness of life. Pick up your cross and follow me is not a metaphor. It is our reality. To follow Jesus is to deny the cravings of the flesh and to receive the power of the Spirit to fight the cravings of the flesh. And here, the flesh does not mean just your body. It more specifically means your disordered desires that at times manifest themselves out through your body. So it has to do with your body, but it's your desires that are out of whack and have taken control of your mind and your body and your whole person and bent them away from Jesus and toward self. The best definition is a primal response for instant gratification. That is a disordered desire. Food, now. Sex, now. Pleasure, now. Acceptance, now. Notifications, now. Stock market rising, now. Career ambition, now. Netflix binge, now. Your body is not your flesh in the way that we think about it, but it is your natural desires that are not first and foremost directed at God, but directed at you. It is why Paul says in Galatians 5, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And again, just think about it for a second. Do we really want to binge Netflix? Really? It is a strong desire, but it is not your deepest desire. Because you know, deep down, you want something much greater than Netflix. There are mostly there things that you want to do, but because your natural response is to appeal to your strongest desire and not your deepest desire, you fail. Paul goes on to name the works of the flesh that come from those desires, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, division, dissension, envy, drunkenness, things like these. And then he has a great line. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So following Jesus is perpetually receiving grace and mercy that empowers us to fight sin and evil. The question is not, can we fight flesh? Of course we can. We have been given the power of the Spirit. This is not a throw your hands up, I can never do this mentality. That is not freedom. It's not freedom. That is slavery. It's the whole first section of Romans 8. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If... If the Spirit of God dwells in you, tabernacles in you, makes His home in you, then it is possible. It is possible. The challenge is the power to fight sin with the Spirit is a discipleship issue. 
And it almost always starts with prayer. Honestly, living in Western culture in a super skeptical society, sometimes reading the Bible can be a bit jarring because you read a collection of stories that you don't necessarily feel are your felt experience of reality. And the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, there is such a story, right? There's a boy who's seized by a demon. He convulses. is foaming at the mouth. He's is literally having essentially a, a massive seizure. This boy's father runs up to Jesus and says, Look, I came to your disciples, and they could not cast this demon out. And Jesus goes on to rebuke the spirit. Spirit comes out of the boy, and so much so that the people around the child thought he was dead, but Jesus kneels down, raises him up. And the disciples are around him this entire time. And they pull him aside, go into a house, and say, Why? Why could we not cast it out? And this is the key. The story is not about the healing. The story is about way before that. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. In Mark, there is a superscript, which is a little number beside um, the scripture that says some manuscripts say fasting. And in Matthew, the entire verse isn't even marked. Matthew 20 and Matthew 22 are in your Bible. Matthew 17, 21, not in your Bible. Good Bible trivia. Not in your Bible. So, kind of weird. If you, go, if you, if you have a Bible, you can look in the, pretty much at the bottom of every Bible. There's a little superscript that says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. That just means in the very original manuscripts, there was some discrepancy. Was it there? Was it not? The authors that collected the scriptures decided it, they weren't going to put it in there because it didn't feel like it copied the exact manuscript. But because most Bibles still have it in there, and because fasting is a regular theme we see throughout the Bible, we can have it on good assumption that this is best practice. So I'm going to say something. I'm going to use this. I'm going to say something. I want to be very careful, but I want to speak clearly. There is something about prayer that is paired with fasting that enables us to be powerful agents of change in the kingdom of God. To fast and to pray, which means to open yourself up to God and to deny your base appetites, specifically over time, not just one single time, you will inevitably become someone who is more attuned to the Spirit, more aware of the sin you are fighting, and though not perfect, you will see victory over sin. That is how God has designed it. Why? Because you have been training and fighting some of the most basic appetites of the human body, hunger. And all the things tend to come up when you're hungry. There is a reason that the word hangry is used so often. Fasting reveals what controls us. When you're hungry, what is your typical response? Irritability? Anger? Frustration? And then what is underneath that? Unaddressed pain? Nagging sin? And then where do you go to suppress that hunger? Is it food? Or is it your phone? Or maybe it is Netflix. Where is it that you are seeking some sort of outside validation when there's a growing 
stomach ache for food. And then there is a growing spirit ache for something else. Part of the reason I am becoming more convinced that we are not more holy is because we are not drawing on the source of power, the Spirit of God in us. There is a reason Jesus describes himself in John as the better food. He said, He who eats me shall live by me and shall live forever. Jesus is the bread that has come down from heaven. When he quotes Deuteronomy 8, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. He's quoting Moses, reminding the Israelites that while they wandered in the desert for 40 years, God provided manna, clothes, his presence, and met them even in their hunger. And Dallas Willard says, the practice of fasting goes together with this teaching of nourishing ourselves in the person of Jesus. It emphasizes the direct availability of God to nourish, sustain, and renew the soul. It is a testimony to the reality of another world from which Jesus and his Father perpetually intermingle their lives with. And the effects of our turning strongly to this true food will be obvious. I know that most non-charismatic evangelical churches can get a little squirmy when talking about power and spirit, and I understand the reason for discomfort, but there is actually not life in the flesh. There is no life, personal willpower, pull yourself up mentality. The entire thread of scripture is based on a power that comes from outside of you through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And the place where you surrender to that power is secrecy. It's secrecy. The theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount is secrecy. Give in secret, fast in secret, go into the prayer closet, not the street corner. You want to live a powerful life and fight sin tooth and nail? Find a little space every day to meet with God. You want to live a public, holy life? Private, intimate prayer. You want to see a righteous, justice-filled world? Fast, weekly. You want to see people set free from the bondage of besetting sins and years-long addictions? There is a different type of power that is not a mental exercise. It is a pleading with God, both in words and in appetites. Acts 1, 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus talking to his disciples as he ascends to heaven. Now, flip over one book, Romans 8, 11. Years later, Paul, writing to the church at Rome, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus has conquered the sins that you cannot kick, and through His Spirit, He now grants you the ability to overcome Sexual addiction, our default to rage, our racist stereotypes, our passivity, our aggressiveness, our apathy for the poor in our city. This is what God wants to root out of us. It is the means to get to the ends. Change is possible. It's mysterious. I don't understand it completely, and I think that's the point. And while we are not fully glorified this side of heaven, we are growing in our likeness if we are willing to submit to His power. This is Paul writing to the church at uh, Colossae. 
For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The starting place to even be aware that God is at work within us is to pause and yield. Because in that moment, we actually receive the power to fight what is so Second is intercession. Pete Gregg is the founder of the 24-7 Prayer Network, which is what it sounds like. It's people praying every hour of every day of every year for the past 21 years, non-stop prayer. He has a helpful definition of intercessors. He says this, intercessors are those who are pleading with God on behalf of people and pleading with people on behalf of God. They stand in the gap. One of the great intercessors in Scripture is Moses, and one of the most dramatic illustrations of intercessory attacked Israel. This is what it says. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. The, I'm sorry, the Amalekites. <laughs> As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. In another episode of Moses' life, the Israelites continued to worship idols, bowing down to a golden calf. God said, Alone, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. But Moses actually refuses to back off. In fact, he does the opposite. He pleads with God and says, Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. And then there is a beautiful, uncomfortable phrase in Scripture that says, Then the Lord relented. When in English, that can be more accurately said then God changed his mind. Does prayer work? This is the question that plagues all of us. Now, prayer is complicated. It's not a magic lamp. God is not a genie. There are times where we plead for God to move, and he does. And there are other times we plead with equal intensity, and he doesn't. I don't necessarily know why. But I know this. It is impossible to read the scriptures and think prayer doesn't change things or it doesn't matter. I want us to be a church that is sincerely and genuinely a praying church, meaning not that we would pray vague prayers in which it is difficult to know if they're even answered or not. You know the prayers because a lot of you have grown up in the church. You know there is an expectation of what it comes to mean when someone says, let's pray. It's like a broad generality where we pray in such a way where we could possibly chalk it up to common sense if what we prayed for came to pass. I am not interested in that. And I actually don't think you are either. I want us to pray specific prayers that intercede. That means we step in on behalf of someone else and plead their cause to God because that is an honest prayer and an earnest prayer. Here's something very interesting. We pray the Lord's Prayer, most of us know it, like the back of our hand. But the original Greek words, hallow, come, be done, give, and forgive, are 
all in the imperative mood, which means there is a forcefulness and an assertiveness and almost a command-like nature to them. Now, it is not demanding God to do something, but it is claiming His promises of who He is and what He's done and what He says He will do. Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth says, Lose the habit of wrestling and the hope of prevailing with God. Make it mere walking with God in friendly talk. And as precious as that is, you tend to lose the reality of In principle, you make it mere conversation instead of the soul's great action. Now, maybe stories like Moses seem like a very, very far and distant cry for you. This book was written thousands of years ago. It's not your experience. Let me bring it a little closer in. Suppose there is an only child who has married parents. And the dad comes to the child and sits down with the child and his mom and says, we are getting a divorce. The child says, why? And the dad says, because your dad has fallen in love with another woman. And the mom says, but I still love him. And absolutely shattered. And the, the dad asks the daughter, what would you like us to do? And she grabs the mom's hand and she grabs the dad's hand and she looks at them and says, I want us to be a family. And she looks at her dad and says, dad, say sorry to mom. And she looks at her mom and says, mom, please forgive dad. This is intercession. That is intercession. She is pleading for one to repent and for one to relent. That's it. Pete Gregg again says, We are in a liminal space between heaven and earth, creator and creation, glory and dirt. Belonging to both, we are unable to take sides, but long for them to be reconciled. There is a reason that we feel disconnect in the world. It is because it's not been reconciled. It is not as it was, and it is not as it will be. We live in this small space of experiencing the brokenness in full and the glory of God in part. And in that real thin space where heaven and earth are colliding, we are interceding. If you have friends who don't follow Jesus or say they don't believe in God, or even scoff at the fact that you follow Jesus, if you want to love them, intercede for them. Petition to God on their behalf. You are representing them to God. If you see injustice in our city, petition to the God of justice, who says he is just, who is just, and repeat the promises of God back to him, not because he needs to be reminded, but because you do. And then ask him to execute justice. If you see abused or abandoned or neglected children in our city, petition to God, who is the ultimate father, who lays down his life for his children, who runs out to meet the prodigal, who takes in the orphan, who goes outside the city gate to meet those the city won't let in. It is so easy and too simple to be merely cynical and skeptical about all the issues that surround us. There are many to say something afar about non-believers, about injustices, about issues in general, and not to aggressively intercede is to be apathetic. It is what Revelation is talking about when the word lukewarm is used. 
It is easy to throw rocks a long ways away. It's a lot difficult when you're praying. Are we overwhelmed by it all and don't know what to do? Are we apathetic towards it all and don't really care? Are we pessimistic towards it all and blame everyone else? It feels like the most basic fundamental thing we can do is fast and pray. Ultimately, heaven is the place of intercession. Jesus interceded for us on the cross for his enemies, screaming, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus interceding on our behalf to God and Jesus as God interceding to us, for us. He is both prophet and priest. He speaks as God to the world, and as a man, he speaks on our behalf to God. And right now, the Spirit himself is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. So, the invitation is to join the prayer of God. We get to do the same for those around us, for grave injustice, for overwhelming sufferers, for freedom from sin, and for one another. The joy of praying is not only that you get to offload your burdens onto God, but it's actually that you get to pick up somebody else's burden and look at them in the eye and say, I will carry this with you. That is intercession. Now, I know that fasting is not the thing most of us want to do or most of us love to do if we've done it. So let me in the next few minutes try and nuance some of this out for you. We do not live in the ancient Near East. And one of the great challenges of reading the scripture is that it gives us the facts without explaining them sometimes. So we know the disciples of Jesus early church actually fasted twice a week two 24-hour periods. Now, we don't know the unique health challenges or the way the body worked, and some of, the things, some of those things have changed over the course of the past two millennia. Some of you may have medical conditions that require you to take medicine with meals or may require you to eat something during the day. That is understandable, totally fine. Do not feel guilty about such a thing. You know your body well enough to know, hey, I'm not going to be able to fast a 24-hour period. Great, don't do that. As your pastor, please don't do that for the sake of your own health and the awareness of how God has wired you. Some of you may have a predisposition to an eating disorder where fasting is going to re-trigger or re-up some of the issues that you have faced in the past. We do not want that for you. If this feels daunting or perhaps traumatizing at some level, please Please, please, please go at your own pace. You know yourself and you know your body better than we do. In two weeks, we are bringing a woman in from Fellowship Middlebrook's counseling office. Her name is Lauren Wolf. She has a specialty in nutrition, but has also done some concentrated work around the idea of body image um, as kind of a larger category. And then category. And I think for a lot of us in this room, um, we do not have a fully orb theology of the body. Um, and if you think, well, I've never struggled with an eating disorder, so why would this apply to me? You, it applies to you because you're part of the fall. Uh, and your view of your body is tainted. If you're a male, if you're a female, it doesn't matter. Um, and so we're going to have a conversation about what, is it, what does it mean that God has given us a body? 
And how do we go about walking this out? Now, some of you may just be generally intimidated by the idea of fasting. And trust me when I say I feel that with you. Anything new is intimidating at some level. But also know that some of the most intimidating things about following Jesus are the most transformative. Some of the things you probably can recollect in your own life that God has invited you into that were the most daunting, you can look back now and say those were the best yeses I ever said to God. God invites us to risk more than he invites us to comfort, and it is in the risk where we find great comfort in God. So here's going to be our general practice for the season of Lent. There are two options that you're invited into. Again, not coercion, invitation. The first is an entry-level fast, which means where you fast one meal a day. Maybe you skip your lunch, maybe you skip a breakfast one morning, and you fast and you pray. Entry-level fast. Then we're going to have a reach-level fast. This is where you eat a meal on Tuesday evening, And then you fast and don't break that fast until Wednesday dinner, essentially a 24-hour fast. And every Tuesday evening, we're going to send out a very short, simple prayer guide. So instead of eating a meal, use that time to pray, to intercede, to receive, to engage God and pray for his kingdom to come. And each week, there will be a different theme or a different topic Um, And as a whole church, we will engage in corporate prayer, all advocating to the Father for the same thing, most likely on the same day. Now, if Wednesday doesn't work for you because you have a standing lunch meeting or that's when you eat with coworkers or whatever, that's totally fine. We picked Wednesday not because it was special, but because it was in the middle of the week. Uh, So there's nothing special about the day, but um, there is an invitation to pray whenever you do fast. And that is the final point there is always an invitation to pray. And that is something that all of us can do. The riskiest thing about prayer is honesty. And the sweetest thing is being empowered by His Spirit as you intercede for others. So let's pray together. Jesus, We want to be a praying people. Help us be a praying people. A people who love your presence, a people who love one another enough to intercede on their behalf, and a people who love our city enough to give them over to you. God, there is so much broken within us. There is so much broken around us. And we need you. And to not pray is itself an act of unbelief. We have convinced ourselves that prayer doesn't really matter. God, show us that it matters. It matters to you. It matters to others. And it matters to our own soul. We want to feed on the Spirit of God. Help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.